Good day. This is the 29th edition of Free City Radio. Thanks for joining us on the weekly podcast. I'm Stefan Christoph here in Montreal, and it is the 16th of February. Big snow over the last few days here. Been working at home and also um, working on this podcast. Um, and so I'm happy to share uh, some of the um, interviews and content you'll be uh, hearing over the next hour. Um, so thanks again for being with us. The first uh, interview I wanted to share is actually about an important um, debate that's taking place right now at McGill University. There is a vote um, that is actually taking place today, the 16th of February, around the Coastal GasLink Pipeline um, and TC Energy Corporation. So basically, McGill University has endowment investments in TC Energy, which is uh, the corporation that is building uh, the coastal gas link pipeline on Wet'suwet'en uh, national territory, on indigenous territories, um, on the west uh, coast of uh, Turtle Island of the uh, North American continent. Um, Wet'suwet'en Nation has been protesting coastal gas link pipeline for a number of years. And there's been a very important solidarity movement around the world, which I'm sure many of you have heard about. It was about one year ago when the uh, Canadian um, military police raided Wet'suwet'en territory. And uh, that sparked protests globally. In the context of the pandemic, the solidarity movement with Wet'suwet'en uh, shifted online. There's been a lot of activity, but of course, there's such a different context now given that uh, public gatherings in the same way as before in terms of protests and solidarity actions simply aren't possible. So uh, one of the actions that is being taken is this push uh, for McGill University to divest from TC Energy, and that's the company building the pipeline again on Wet'suwet'en Nation territory. Um, I co-authored an opinion piece last week in the McGill Daily Newspaper, uh, with Kasim Tiramisi, uh, who's a researcher, writer, and also part-time faculty at McGill. Um, and basically, we invited both organizations and individuals to sign on to that letter, uh, which has been circulated uh, widely within uh, the McGill community, but also beyond. Um, so around that, I recorded a conversation with Kasim about some of the um, content of that letter, uh, endowment investments, McGill University, and also just broader systems um, in terms of how university endowments are linked to systems of colonialism and uh, looking back also at McGill as a university linked to slavery in terms of the founder of McGill, James McGill, having had uh, African and also indigenous slaves in his home, uh, but also as a person who made a lot of wealth Um, on the basis of dispossession of indigenous lands historically. Um, So it's within that context I speak with Qasim. I also speak with Marlene Hale, uh, who is a Wet'suwet'en activist and also a chef, um, who has done a lot of work to uh, promote indigenous cuisine and culture, and also been on the front lines of being a vocal supporter of Wet'suwet'en Nation's opposition to Coastal GasLink Pipeline, Uh, here specifically in this city in Montreal because she lives here most of the time. 
Um, so I wanted to share this conversation with you uh, here on Free City Radio. So let's go. Uh, I mean, what are endowments in general? So like universities have uh, financial assets, and these financial assets are invested in uh, usually like in stocks, in different companies. And these are meant to ensure the financial uh, stability of a university into perpetuity. And so this is the kind of logic that they had. Uh, one, uh, I mean, in principle, it sounds like a good idea that, you know, you have a certain amount of money, you know, if there's like instability in the economy, uh, even let's say during COVID, uh, if the government uh, changes policies of its funding or tuition goes up or down, you know, there is some degree of stability for an institution to uh, go forward uh, in whatever kind of period. One also has to ask is what's the origin of these financial assets and in what investments, uh, what are the impacts and how uh, is wealth being generated based on these financial assets? Now, if we look at, if we go back, you know, 200 years or more, uh, the founding of this university is based on uh, uh, assets that James McGill left to uh, construct a university, uh, what's now called McGill University. And, uh, you know, this is someone who was a fur trader. Uh, he was also uh, involved in the trading of goods based on products uh, made in uh plantations, slave plantations in the West Indies. Uh, he was also uh, someone who had slaves in his own household, uh, those who were indigenous. And they were also, uh, we have knowledge that there were also black slaves in his household. So this wealth that he had generated, which you know he left to the making of this university, came from the dispossession of indigenous peoples. It was based on an economy, based on the transatlantic uh, slave trade. Uh, so, I mean, the McGill University has recognized this. Uh, they've, you know, they've, they've put also some money into having research done into the past of McGill. And I think that's something really important. But if we, as a university, we're saying we wanna go towards reconciliation. We wanna see how, uh, you know, universities have been implicated in bad relations with indigenous peoples and we want to have reconciliation. Uh, well, reconciliation means that there were uh, friendly relations from the, from the get-go and we're going back to those, but there wasn't uh, friendly relations. This is based, this is well generated from uh, dispossession of indigenous peoples. Uh, and so if we want to, I think indigenous peoples are saying we want the decolonization of universities. And what is decolonization? It's not just about introducing uh, indigenous perspectives into the classrooms, inviting indigenous elders into the classroom, which is important and it should be done. But we also have to think about, you know, uh, that this is something which is material. There needs to be some degree of reparations. We have to talk about reparations and connected to that is like seeing how, uh, you know, this wealth, we're, is this wealth you know, being invested? And is this wealth being invested in the ongoing uh, colonization of indigenous territories? Which is, you know, if we look at the financial assets of where endowments go, uh, we can see a number of suspects. I'm just gonna talk about one today, which is TC Energy Corporation, which has, you know, so McGill University has 4.7, a bit more than $4.7 million invested in TC Energy, which has a project in Wet'suwet'en territory 
the coastal gas link pipeline, which is being constructed uh, without the consent of the Wet'suwet'en nation. And so if this, you know, if McGill's stability is based on the dispossession of indigenous peoples, then, you know, we have to call that out. And so if there's something uh, hypocritical, if we're talking about decolonization, reconciliation, when it's, uh, when um, McGill's for financial perpetuity is based on dispossession and it's based on negating indigenous self-determination. So uh, some of us, we came together to write this letter to highlight the need for divestment uh, that, you know, if we're talking about climate change, if we're talking about decolonization, it has to be with uh, respecting indigenous self-determination. And a small thing of that is divestment. And you know that's uh, why we believe it's really important to for McGill University to divest from TC Energy. Thank you so much uh, for outlining all of this. Um, could you just repeat the amount that McGill endowments have invested in TC Energy? It's uh, four point seven million dollars. So this next week, students will be voting on a divestment motion through the SSMU, the Student Society of McGill University. Uh, the letter that uh, Kazem has mentioned uh, was worked on uh, in a series of efforts, including conversations with Marlene Hale, who's also joining us, uh, who's actually on the West Coast right now. Uh, Marlene, you've been talking a lot about the ways that the pandemic is impacting uh, Wet'suwet'en Nation, and specifically the ways that um, the pandemic has uh, brought COVID into the community through workers from across Canada that are shipped in against the collective will of the Wet'suwet'en to build this pipeline. So just for people who maybe aren't following, can you share a bit about what's going on in the community? I know you've been talking with, you know, your family members and elders about not just the pipeline, but the situation uh, with COVID. Yes, uh, good afternoon, Stefan. Uh, thank you for very much for having me on today. It is crucial to keep the, uh, the Wet'suwet'en story totally alive. We cannot lose the momentum of today exactly what is going on because it is literally, it hasn't stopped. COVID has not stopped anything. COVID has not stopped TC Energy, uh, and it has not stopped uh, the RCMP going into our territory of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. It hasn't done anything. In fact, it's made it worse by bringing the COVID into our nation where uh, three weeks ago, we did lose uh, an elderly couple. They both passed away within uh, one week of each other of COVID. And that was, in, uh, they lived in a place called Burns Lake, BC, which is, got, is the home also of um, the, the man camps where there, there lived 630 men and bring it into the communities through driving through restaurants, hotels, you name it, just at a constant uh, flow of people from airports to buses driving through. And what it is gone and so, so hurtful for our nation to see that we're still going with unheard of from anybody, the governments. There is still an ongoing talk from the MOU, which is the Memorandum of Understanding, which was going on since last fifth, uh, March the 15th of last year. Our uh, people are um, 
constantly having now the Zoom meetings, but which the, the women have formed a group called Zakoze. And what that is, is the matriarchs have taken it upon themselves to do a lot of uh, groundwork, starting with water, many issues, then helping along with the, uh, the, the chiefs because everybody is just so overwhelmed. And uh, yesterday's conversation with, with them was uh, people coming in and out of the communities uh, with medical. And is there a place that uh, for them to isolate? And that's crucial because there just isn't. Keeping bubbles small is very important. On a bigger picture, when people still don't understand that, like in the last two years since January the 7th, 2019, when this uh, story first came out and Coastal Gaslink uh, and the RCMP came on and put an injunction on our people to put uh, a pipeline through the Wet'suwet'en territory. From then on, we know is what has the last of, uh, before the COVID hit was shut down Canada. Where that happened, one of the, the biggest, one of, I remember me talking about this on one uh, incidence of, of a talk that I had with some elders from Ganawagi that we have to go after the monetary system. And this is exactly what Kazim, I really appreciate that you have uncovered. And it's important for people to understand the, the flow of money and the, the, the distraction that it's taking and the wealth that people are investing in on, on the fact that it's, you're, you're teaching people indigenous issues in your, your university. You are, on, you are on Indigenous land in Montreal. You are doing everything right, the respectful way in Indigenous. But then it doesn't make sense to turn around and do and uh, to talk about decolonization of universities and everything else when you're turning around and investing as a university, as a huge, one of the hugest all across Canada, to put that money, $4.7 million into uh, what you are doing right now. And it is just, it's to call you out is just the right thing to do, to make you understand the destruction you are putting upon everyday people, indigenous people. We so wanted badly just to turn this tide back and go back to our normal lives. But we have to con continually, um, Counting people like Kazim to come and uh, up with that, you know, it is a lot of work to do the letter that he did. And I made a, a cry out to the students of the uh, university to really plead with them that we need to keep this momentum going. Mm -hmm. And so that's a and great. I, I'm sorry, I, I just was wanting to mention about the momentum, Marlene, because you've made a choice. Um, so many times in Montreal and um, in other parts of, you know, these territories to, to speak up and to, to uh, tell not just your story, but the Wet'suwet'en uh, story and the importance of sustaining opposition. It was, you know, very much a focus one year ago, um, but you've always mentioned the importance of sustaining this campaign. So students will be voting next week uh, on a divestment motion. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of trying to keep uh, up the support for the Wet'suwet'en um, at this time. 
Well, right now in uh, Northern British Columbia, the CGL, the RCMP, the government, the two governments, the provincial and uh, the Prime Minister Trudeau's government, they all think that it's just as well that, you know, the pandemic is here, it will quieten things down and things will just go away, or they have threatened many things on us. More or less, really, just to get the COVID die and go away was a thing that was hurtful last year to hear. But on the other hand, we it has kept um, many people in different ways to still keep up uh, the 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 importance because it's not just Wet'suwet'en Nation; it's all nations across Canada. Right now, in and in uh, GNL in Quebec is dealing with that with people in northern Quebec. I help them as well and speak about many other areas, not just the Wet'suwet'en area. So that people really take a stand at knowing that we have so many allies and that's really important. We are grateful for that. Gratitude is huge when you need to have the help and the support of many other people, Canada, nation and worldwide. Indigenous people all over the people, all over the area to keep us, our, you know, us stable in the economy, the way it is going. Uh, it has a lot of, lots of impact from what the, the CGL has put on, it has really hurt our people horribly in economy wise. And also the death toll is putting on our nation. And also the, when you take all, you know, when you take all the inventory of all what we have suffered for the last two years, it is something that just definitely will not be put under, under the, the, the rug and, and, you know, put out, put it, put aside. And it is really, challenging for us but then again it is not so because we have people like the students association and and of mcgill your people like yourself stefan and kazim to help us understand that we are just not riding this alone so marlene thank you for underlining all that and it's great to have worked with you on this letter so i just want to uh, highlight that what you were mentioning about the traditional economy or the economy in general and how the pipeline actually impacts traditional lifestyles within Wet'suwet'en uh, territory. Um, and also if you could just uh, mention uh, the ways that um, right now with the pandemic, uh, there's a danger uh, for the elders and why uh, a vote on divestment next week is one way to address the issues your community is facing. Well, since this uh, story broke out last year, we just spoke about uh, a conversation where we're losing all of our speakers. We lost seven speakers last year. We lost 26 people of our nation. 26 members is a lot of people. A lot of them being elderly and an elderly eldership is very important because we need to keep the knowledge keepers and to lose them is crucial. A lot of this has been very hard on them. And also the isolation added on to that is another one that is just, it's very worrisome. So they, the CGL right now is really um, crucial because to, to have it stop because it's a one third almost finished to have the pipelines through. Mm -hmm. But then it has got, you know, it, to continue our fight until they finish that, it's gonna push them, fight them right to the very end that okay. you are on our territory. We want you off that territory and we want you to stay out. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you, Marlene, uh, for, for, for sharing this message with students at McGill and also for anybody else who's listening. This is, of course, an issue that is of concern to many people. Um, this uh, discussion today is uh, an attempt to share information specifically with the McGill, different communities at McGill, but also beyond. So, Kazem, I'll just go back to you um, in regards to the work that you've done to um, do some research about McGill's endowment investments and to make these connections uh, between supporting the Wet'suwet'en and uh, other struggles for justice um, in terms of land, in terms of human rights. Um, I'm just wondering if you could just underline the importance uh, uh, as to why, even if symbolic, students taking a vote next week to express uh, support for a divestment from coastal gasoline pipeline is important. Uh, I think one thing which is quite crucial is that uh, there's a lot of support for decolonization. And I think uh, students who were out and they were in uh, demonstrations last year, uh, also the, the number of uh, associations, student associations which signed on to this letter are demonstrative also of this, that there is this uh, a collective will which says that, you know, we need to rethink the university and see what the university is implicated in. And that this is not something uh, about being friendly to Indigenous people and you know, bringing Indigenous people into classrooms. But if we are committed to something about decolonization and rethinking and having a more equitable uh, university, we have to think about our investments. You know, we cannot think about the stability of this institution at the, on the backs of dispossession. Uh, there has to be an ethical principle and not just about the economic bottom line for a few while uh, leaving many people behind. I mean, if a public university is meant to have education, knowledge, accessible, uh, this institution, that cannot be on the backs of dispossession, not, not on the backs of Wet'suwet'en. It has to look into uh, where is this money going? I mean, there might have not, I mean, it could have been all in goodwill that uh, they thought, okay, this is uh, something which has a high profitability or bring some stability, uh, but there needs to be accountability. Uh, and people have said this, and I, I looked into this and I tried to follow the money, but there was other, you know, Divest McGill last year also brought this issue up. And so this is not, uh, people have brought this up. So if the university has now been warned that, you know, th there is this, uh, connection between uh, Wet'suwet'en territory being dispossessed and uh, McGill endowments. You know, that connection has been made. So there needs to be a uh, coherency in what the university is saying if it's committed to reconciliation or if it's committed to decolonization, that it needs to rethink where are financial assets located. And what does that mean? And even, uh, even I think we need to even go beyond the question of divestment and think about how can these financial assets create stability, but yet also, you know, it brings uh, towards the ending of colonial relations. It goes towards, you know, uh, an anti-racist future. And I think we need to even think beyond just, okay, taking our money, but how do we put these, this money in places which make communities flourish? That was a conversation with Qasem Termizi and Marlene Hale.
Uh, I recorded that in the context of an open letter that we published um, this past week uh, through the McGill Daily at McGill University. That is, um, of course, uh, the student newspaper in English. Um, it was a letter that was also published in Le Daily, which is the French uh, student paper at McGill. Um, so I'd really encourage people to continue to follow uh, Wet'suwet'en Nation's struggle uh, for sovereignty over their Indigenous lands and also against the coastal gas link pipeline, which is being built against the collective wishes of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Uh, so many people from the nation have come out in opposition to the pipeline. So I think it's really important that we continue to follow this story. Um, so... Thank you to Marlene and Kasim for being on Free City Radio. This is the 29th edition. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph, here in Montreal. It is the 16th of February. I'm going to go to a piece of music uh, from uh, a group, a project, music project I really like called Pie Corner Audio. Here we go. <laughs>
that was a piece of music by Pi Corner Audio. Um, their work is featured uh, a lot in uh, documentary films of Adam Curtis, who just had a, a big release out recently. I encourage you to check out his work. It's through the BBC, but it's really quite uh, moving. Uh, the latest documentary, um, it begins with a quote from uh, the late David Graeber, who was a friend of mine and has been on CKUT radio. Um, thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. It is the 16th of February. Uh, this is Free City Radio, the 29th edition. Um, next on the show, I wanted to feature uh, the first in um, another series of interviews that I'm working on in collaboration with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Um, that is a project that is looking to um, both expose and explore critically Canadian foreign policy in regards to um, a number of areas, looking at arms shipments, looking at uh, foreign policy positions uh, in regards to international law. And one issue that uh, the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute has been working to expose is Canadian arms shipments to Saudi Arabia. And um, this is in the context of the government of Saudi Arabia uh, making uh, a sustained military campaign in Yemen that has created one of the worst uh, humanitarian disasters in the world. Uh, I spoke with an organizer in Toronto named Rachel Small, uh, who works with the group World Beyond War. And I really wanted to speak with Rachel because I think um, the action that they took um, just about two weeks ago in Toronto, I think is really important uh, because it exposed uh, the construction of military uh, vehicles for export to Saudi Arabia that takes place in Canada. Um, that was an agreement between the government of Canada and the government of Saudi Arabia that was under review. But last spring, in the context of the pandemic, uh, the agreement was again green-lighted by the government. I think it's really important because it shows the distance between the rhetoric on the part of the Liberal government and their actions. Uh, they're allowing this uh, arms um, agreement to continue, despite uh, the very clear um, and unjust behavior on the part of the government of Saudi Arabia, particularly under the leadership of Mohammed bin Salman um, in Saudi Arabia. So uh, protesters actually blocked some of the trucks uh, in Hamilton, Toronto area uh, that were transporting this military-grade equipment for export to Saudi Arabia. And Rachel Small from World Beyond War was one of the people that was working on that. So I, I spoke with her for this interview series um, that I'm working on in collaboration with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. So we'll go right to that now. I think that sometimes certain issues are more or less talked about or discussed or protested at various times, but it doesn't always line up with where the issue actually currently stands. So to be clear, I mean, there's over 13,000 nuclear warheads that exist today. So maybe people were more alarmed and talking about this issue more in the 80s. But the issue has not gotten better. Um, many of those are on high alert status. That means they could be launched within minutes. We know that we've been almost unfathomably lucky over the past several decades. There have been many accidents, many um, missteps, issues with computer software, issues with false alarms that have nearly led to nuclear disaster many times. Um, I'm speaking about nuclear weapons, but others can share similar issues with nuclear power. Um, we, I think you're right that it's less of a hot topic right now, but not because nuclear warfare is any less of a threat than it's ever been. Um, 
I mean, even just to look at our, our neighbors down south, um, Washington is committed to spending over one and a half trillion dollars mm-hmm. over the next few decades to modernize its nuclear stockpile with new bombs that are, they are saying, 80 times more powerful than what was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we're not just talking about old weapons that are still sitting somewhere. We're talking about active nuclear programs that are perpetuating a current nuclear problem. This is part of the context why it was so exciting on January 22nd when the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons came into place. This was the first international mechanism to not just stigmatize, not just point out how immoral nuclear weapons have always been, but actually make them illegal. Um, Of course, many more countries need to sign on. Of course, this is just the start of this treaty, not the end. It was a very exciting start and the culmination of so many decades of activism from so many people around the world who have given their life to this struggle. So the um, International Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, um, can you just underline a bit more about that treaty? And also, I understand that Canada, uh, the government of Canada has not signed on. That's right. It's been very striking to see, uh, as with many aspects of our foreign policy, the ways that the Canadian government's words and their actions not just don't line up, but are in are exactly the opposite. The, the real, the hypocrisy of the Liberals' foreign policy and specifically their nuclear policy. So on one hand, um, we see them explicitly saying we are deeply committed, or, or to use a direct quote, Canada unequivocally supports global nuclear disarmament. Um, we're committed to building a world free of nuclear weapons So they publicly express these desires, but then they completely refuse to uh, support the TPNW or in fact, even participate in the negotiations. Um, NATO countries in general have done almost everything within their power to encourage other nations to boycott or, or cancel their ratification of the treaty, in fact. So actively campaigning against the only international tool right now that is really seeking nuclear disarmament at the same time as they're publicly saying, oh, we unequivocally support this, this effort. Um, that's been sort of the weird situation of the past few months, um, trying to push the government to do any of what it's saying that it's, that it's doing. Um, in terms of the treaty itself, um, as part of why we know this is so important is we know that with any other disarmament efforts, such as treaties on chemical weapons, biological weapons, landmines, uh, cluster munitions, that the way to get these weapons to stop being used and built and distributed is to prohibit them. Um, And those are all examples where there have been international treaties that have been criticized, the countries like the US have boycotted, but in fact made a huge difference um, and helped to stigmatize these weapon systems um, and create sort of a, a, a global consensus that Uh, These are abhorrent, these are unlawful, and these are deeply immoral weapons. So this is the process that we're at with nuclear weapons with the TPNW. So that's a really great reference, Rachel. Thank you so much. The Treaty on Landmines. I mean, uh, that was definitely a critical turning point in sort of the stigmatization of the use of landmines internationally. Canada did sign on to that treaty. Um, The TPNW, the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, um, so that's a contemporary uh, sort of 
point of contestation. So your organization and others um, have been trying to push the Canadian government on this issue. Can you maybe just underline the importance of the political symbolic importance of the treaty, but also the way that it's important to consider this as like a very clear point of mobilization around not just nuclear weapons, but around militarism and sort of the military industrial complex in general, because it is always, of course, important to remember, as your organization has pointed out, the ways that companies do profit off of the uh, process of militarization, whether it's around nuclear weapons, but also in, in, in regards to other uh, military machinery. Absolutely. Um, we have held a number of events recently to celebrate the TPNW coming into effect and also in the various uh, countries where it has not been ratified to really push for that ratification. And they have been not just deeply celebratory, but deeply emotional events. We held a film screening of the movie, The Man Who Saved the World. Um, and our, our board member, Alice Slater, led the conversation after on that. And this is a woman who, since she saw the first nuclear bomb detonated while she was in a movie theater in the US and it sort of came up as breaking news, has, been, has dedicated her whole life to banning the bomb. And at the same time, um, Many Canadians over the past year or so have, through the media, through um, journal articles and so forth, have gone to know a little bit about Satsuko Thurlow, a nuclear bomb survivor who ultimately moved to Canada. And I mean, this is someone who witnessed, um, I believe it was her and two other people from her school class who survived and everyone else um, died on that fateful day. And, and since then has dedicated her entire life to abolishing these weapons. And what an emotional and powerful and such a rare moment um, that we had on January 22nd when countries all over the world stood up in unison and, and said, no, we will not um, continue to on one hand say, oh, these weapons are terrible, but you know, we need them for deterrence or we need to update our arsenals or this or that. No, we uniformly condemn them. They should not exist and we need to make them stop existing. So it's, I think a really powerful moment for humanity. And as someone who is also active in struggles for climate justice, um, there, there are so many spaces where we know we need global cooperation and a shared belief that we can take real action to ensure that our kids will literally have a livable future on the planet. So I see this as a sign of hope, not just around nuclear weapons, but um, in, in, in concerted global action for a, a future on this planet. And I mean, in terms of the Canadian context, pushing Canada to, um, to mean what it says and to act behind its words on that, I feel like is is so symbolic of the general work that we have to do in Canada. So otherwise put, I mean, we know from recent extensive polling that a majority of folks in Canada really want Canada's military role to focus on things like peacekeeping, on disaster relief, mm -hmm. um, but, but yet we know in sharp contrast, Canada's doing the exact opposite. It's ramping up its role as a warmonger, especially within NATO. It's an enormous global arms dealer, the second biggest arms dealer to the whole Middle East. Um, it's a huge weapons manufacturer. Um, 
so what Canada is actually doing militarily, is it completely at odds with what most people in Canada want? This is one aspect of that. Um, and we're pushing on it in, in many different angles. And I mean, to, to connect with what I was saying earlier, a little bit about the fight for climate justice, I think many people don't realize the major role that the Canadian military plays in the climate crisis. Um, so all of our struggles are, are deeply connected. Um, even just looking at, for example, the carbon emissions of the Canadian military, which are by far the largest source of all government emissions, but conveniently are exempted from all of Canada's national greenhouse gas reduction targets. Um, if you look, for example, at the ways that the mining of materials to build war machines. So here we're talking about everything from uranium, for example, for nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. um, to metals, to rare earth elements for, for essentially all the war machines that Ken is producing. These have a terrible environmental impact, even at the mine site, not even yet looking at where the bombs fall. Um, so we are, we join fellow uh, movements in solidarity, recognizing that we cannot have peace without a livable planet and that we can't truly adjust, uh, address Canada's climate Im impact, uh, carbon emissions without addressing the outsized impact of the military. And I mean, even at, to put an even finer point on it, even just looking at the past year um, mm -hmm. at the ways that militarized police forces have been acting enacting terrible violence from coast to coast. These are police forces that are getting military equipment uh, for free, directly from the Canadian military in many cases. Mm -hmm. And those who are taking the most difficult stands at the climate front lines. So for example, looking at indigenous peoples blocking pipelines or clear cut projects, they're being attacked and surveilled by the Canadian military directly. Um, I could go on, but just to say that these struggles are interconnected and we can't address one without the other. Thank you, Rachel. I really appreciate that intersectional uh, analysis here around climate and policing and, and systems of militarization. So maybe just on the last point, uh, Rachel, if, if you could just highlight um, the ways that you think, and also through the work that you do, um, organizing can impact these issues. Because I think often, like in a, in, a, in a good sense, a lot of these issues have come forward today, you know, people are sharing articles to think about, you know, the ways that war and climate change are connected, or the ways that the military industrial complex does uh, play a, a significant role in greenhouse gases, there is more information being shared about these issues. But um, you have focused on the importance of action, collective action, um, and you know, with along with many other organizations. So Maybe if, if you could just share some thoughts to end about the ways that actually social movements can make an impact in, in reducing militarization and, and through the consequence of that violence, you know, on various levels in regards to the climate, in regards to the militarization of the police. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I mean, the work that World Beyond War um, does is to connect with people locally where they are in many cases, help them start local chapters and to really break down what's happening internationally, these, these issues that can seem so huge. Okay, we're talking about war abolition on the global scale. How do I jump in? But actually these are deeply local issues. So uh, for example, uh, just two weeks ago on January 25th, 
a number of us uh, gathered in Hamilton, Ontario, because we had found out that the uh, LAVs, the light armored vehicles, otherwise known as tanks, um, that Canada is shipping to Saudi Arabia that are being used to kill people in the devastating war in Yemen. Turns out these tanks are basically rolling right by us on the highway, almost right by my home in Toronto, um, on their way to this war. Um, and so we were able to, for just over an hour, literally stop those trucks from being able to ship those tanks. Obviously, this is one hour and, and the work continues, but it was a material disruption in their ability to arm uh, the worst humanitarian situation on the planet. It did receive in that case, global media coverage. And I, I know that many others have been inspired because we've been in touch and others are, are planning um, to do the same. And then of course, within a week, Biden announced a, uh, a pause on all shipping of arms, um, or sorry, I should say all arms exports from the US to Saudi Arabia as part of ending the war on Yemen. Italy has done the same. And so we're seeing this moment where many years of organizing to end the war on Yemen and to stop various countries around the world from arming this war um, are bringing about a, a, real, a real change. Mm -hmm. I would say that anywhere where you, where you are um, and certainly all across Canada, Two people locally can begin to dig into what is happening in my town, what are the connections between um, impacts elsewhere and what's happening here, and can start writing to their local newspaper. Three or four people can hold an event, can start to interview people, can dig deeper. Once you've got four, five, six people, you've got a local group who can block trucks, who can bring forward a resolution at city council, our Vancouver chapter, I uh, just managed to pass a resolution at Langley city council, just near uh, Vancouver, BC, mm -hmm. to get the council to, to declare support for the TPNW, um, recognizing that cities are who will be targeted by nuclear weapons. So even if the federal government won't take a strong stand, cities can. Mm -hmm. um, other communities have managed to demilitarize their police forces due to citizen initiatives at city council. So there, there's local angle to all of these issues and it doesn't take as many people or as much time as you would think to make a real material dent. Great, well, thanks so much for sharing that, Rachel. Um, just finally, what's the website of your organization? We're at worldbeyondwar.org. Mm -hmm. I can be reached at rachel at worldbeyondwar.org and uh, follow us on Twitter at WBW Canada. World Beyond War, uh, that's a great thing to um, work towards. <laughs> so thanks for your time this morning. Thanks so much. Hey, Kat is uh, Rachel Small from World Beyond War. Uh, it's an organization based in Toronto that I think does really important work in uh, highlighting uh, the unjust uh, nature of war, uh, the military-industrial complex, and took a very important action in recent weeks to protest Canadian arms shipments to the government of Saudi Arabia uh, in the context of their ongoing military campaign in Yemen, which has created one of the worst humanitarian disasters in the world. Um, and I think it's really important to continue to critique and to look at um, Canadian arms shipments uh, globally within the context of a broader unpacking of the military-industrial complex, the profiteering that happens um, through war. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, you know, 
shorthand, we talk about Canadian arms exports to Saudi. But I think it's important to, to say specifically the Saudi government, the, the government of Saudi Arabia, not just Saudi, because right now in Saudi, there is uh, a lot of human rights activists speaking up and talking about uh, injustice. And uh, it's important to remember that there are many um, voices of dissent in Saudi Arabia who are facing uh, repression. So um, this is the first in a second series of interviews that I've worked on in collaboration with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. I'm working with uh, Bianca Mugeni and Eve Angler, um, and uh, we'll be featuring more interviews from this series in the upcoming weeks. So thanks for uh, following this. Uh, it is the 16th of February uh, here in Montreal, and I'm Stefan Christoph. Uh, this is the weekly edition of Free City Radio. Um, thanks for being um, with us and subscribing. Um, it's a lot of work to put this together. So if you like what you hear, uh, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can do that um, just by uh, giving us a rating online. And uh, I also wanted to highlight, uh, this is our 29th edition already. So we'll be back next Tuesday. If you want to reach me about anything, uh, I am at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. And also I'm on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. Uh, thanks for being with us uh, today, um, and uh, we'll be back next week. And I wanted to go out with a beautiful piece of music, a duet between Charlie Hayden and Alice Coltrane here on Free City Radio. Okay, take care.
Thank you.